Good morning. I would like to add my welcome to Richard's welcome and welcome back to Hugh Taft Morales. Yay, here. <laughs> Visiting us from Guatemala, where he'll be until February. And welcome back to Hugh and John Dakin, who has been serving the Baltimore Ethical Society. Both Hugh and John are leaders in training in the American Ethical Union. And Hugh, John, and Richard were just attending the National Leaders Council. I start with a story from the New York Times. In Nyala, which is a place that borders Darfur, where the genocide, as you know, has killed almost 400,000 people in the past four years in this remote and now notorious place, a transformation, a revolution, a tipping point really occurred. And it's hard to say, and who can say, whether this conversion is of the kind that sometimes turns the world. Older women in the Sudan, those upon whom the title of Hakama has been conferred, are regarded as the wise elders. And they are honored for their wisdom and their special gifts and their insights. And the Hakama's special gift is ritual singing. They gather together to sing melodious poems, often spontaneously composed. These are songs of love and birth and coming of age and marrying and dying. But they are more than poets and singers. The Hakamas are also the community judges, respected and revered for the position and for which they train their whole lives. Well, in addition to their songs of celebration, they also sing songs of war. And before the murderous Janga Weeds militiamen ride out into battle, it's been their custom to gather together with the Hakamas on straw mats, and the, and the Hakamas then prepare them for battle by stirring them up with songs of bravery and conquest and brutality and terror. But not long ago, a group, a core group of these women saying publicly that in the face of so much violence and bloodshed and so much death, they are wishing that they could take back their songs. Eventually, they were joined by all of the other Hakamas, and they tearfully and publicly acknowledged the role that they played in the brutality that has destroyed and displaced millions. They still sing songs of bravery and tribal pride, but the songs that they sing to the Janjaweed have changed from the celebration of ruthless brutality to its condemnation. They sing mournful songs now, songs of grief and of shame. And because of their honored and pivotal tribal role, the transformation carries with it, of course, 
enormous impact. The people of the villages, including the fighters, are all listening. So what on earth could move these women, guardians of their culture's identity, to change their generations-old tradition and make such a courageous choice? What do you imagine shifted in these women, the first woman, in fact, to be open to a new way and in a way where others joined their hearts to theirs? And what more good can come from that one woman's conversion? How long does it take, as a rule, to transform a whole world? Well, as most of you have heard by now, former Vice President Al Gore was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize this past Friday for his work against global warming. And reporting on this, well, yay. (laughs) And reporting on this well-deserved achievement, Time Magazine this weekend declared that for environmentalists, 2000 and seven is likely to be remembered as the tipping point when public understanding of the existential threat of climate warming has reached a critical mass. And I thought about that comment for a while and wondered what finally made the difference. How, where people finally heard that the alarm that Al Gore and scientists have been sounding for at least two decades. What was the one moment that tipped the scales? Now, Gore has been, as you know, tirelessly crisscrossing the globe with his laptop in hand, taking his message to oil magnates and politicians and really anyone who could listen. His movie about global warming... An inconvenient truth was seen by millions. Efforts by the administration notwithstanding, leaders from conservative as well as liberal groups have been joining together for quite a while now to issue their own call to action. Did that begin to turn the tide? Or maybe it happened when we were watching the devastation and the ferocity of Katrina unfold. Or maybe the moment occurred when just one more person watched on television the image of the ice shells collapsing in Antarctica or the heartbreaking image of drowning polar bears. What was it that finally convinced most people that we must take action against global warming? Well, in the balance of everyday life, tiny changes can make a big difference. In his best-selling book, Tipping Points, by Malcolm Gladwell, how many of you have read that book, by the way? It's a great book. Um, He refers to the tipping point as magic moments in time when an idea or a trend or a social behavior crosses a threshold, and it tips, and it spreads like wildfire. A second important tipping point happened just this year in our country, and that was the nation's change of heart on the war in Iraq. Millions of demonstrators across the city and across the cities and around the world, and every Protestant religion, including the president's own Methodists, even President Bush's father, have for years questioned the wisdom and the 
legitimacy and the legality of this war. Over 3,800 active duty American soldiers, as well as civilians, and over 650,000 Iraqis have been killed. But it took until this past summer for the tipping point to occur, the tipping point in our collective consciousness, when now 62% of Americans are reporting that the war was, in fact, a mistake. Now, Gladwell looks at social phenomena such as these, and he describes how relatively small, insignificant changes can have massive social results. He starts with some innocuous examples, such as the anatomy of a yawn. You know how contagious they are. Or how measles or a stomach flu can spread throughout a school. But then he moves on to bigger systems, noting that in the matter of months, in the year 1982, the AIDS epidemic went from kind of a rare disease that was just affecting a few gay men to a worldwide epidemic. Now, one of the characteristics of an epidemic is that the infection spreads not gradually, but dramatically, with a particular moment in time when the infection achieves kind of a, a, a threshold, a boiling point, when a, a point when it becomes once unexpected, but now certain. And this is what he refers to as the tipping point. And this is a very useful metaphor because it explains a whole lot of things. Just like the flu, ideas and messages and trends and behaviors can also spread, like epidemics. And this is useful to us because when we understand how negative epidemics spread, we can also learn how to create positive epidemics, or in other words, viruses for good. Now, to understand this, we really first need to grasp um, kind of a mathematical principle. So I want you to think about it this way, and I really wish that I had something to illustrate this with, but imagine in your mind's eye taking a very large piece of paper and then cut it in two. Now, in your mind, take that paper again, and and lay it on top of the other and do the same thing again. So what you now have, of course, is a stack of four papers, right? So you repeat that operation then again and again, and you have a stack first of eight papers, and then 16. You all can do the math so far, right? And then 32, and then 64, and then 128, and your stack is growing and growing. So how high do you think your stack would be if you performed this operation 50 times? Well, most people, if you ask them that question, will calculate the height as somewhere between a phone book and a refrigerator. But in fact, the real answer is that if you perform this operation to the 14th degree, you'll have a stack the size of 32 books. And by the time you've repeated this 50 times, the stack would reach the sun. And one more time, the stack would reach the the equivalent of the sun to the sun and back again. So this is how we can understand epidemics. 
They don't happen incrementally. If one person passes along a virus to two other people, and they pass it along to two more, and on and on, the result is an action that started out small and inconsequential, and then progresses to something that is manageable at first, and then explosive. This is how trends start, and how new religious movements also get traction. Gladwell calls this principle the law of the few. And the law of the few says that these changes can have a big impact and that any epidemic for the greater good begins through the initiative and commitment of just a handful of people. So while I wouldn't exactly call it an epidemic, we have had a recent experience of the law of the few, and it applies in my mind to our Opening Doors Meeting House Accessibility and Expansion Campaign. Our unique and very sturdy building has served us for the past 40 years, except, of course, when the roof or the walls leaked or when differently abled persons tried to get into the building, or when they managed to get into the building and then they couldn't use the restrooms downstairs because they couldn't get there, or when a crowd of people would come into an event and end up in a bottleneck in the lobby because it wasn't exactly laid out for flow or for conversation. And so the building, as comfortable and as familiar as it has been, was actually limiting what we can do and who we might become. And it was also not an all with, in keeping with who we are as a people. And it, but it, at the same time, this just seemed impossible that we could take on a project of this magnitude at the same time that our senior leader was retiring after 34 years of service. However, a few good people believed not only in a bigger vision, but also in you and began to share that vision and that message of hope with a few more people. And then those people shared their own hopes and dreams with a few more, an idea, and an idea that was at first greeted naturally with some resistance and some skepticism took hold. So Gladwell says that there are three important types of people who will um, create this kind of speedy spread of an idea or a message. The first group are the connectors. They are the people in this community or in any community who seem to know everybody. And they spend a whole lot of time nurturing their relationships. Connectors actually are very rare in our, in our culture, but they maintain many more times the number of relationships than most people have. And word-of-mouth epidemics actually depend on them. I'm sure you can think of a whole lot of people in this community who are connectors. There are a lot of examples, actually, of connectors from religious movements. One was John Wellesley, Wesley, excuse me, who was the founder of Methodism, who basically spent 40 years on a horse going around infecting people with the idea of Methodism. And another in person who's kind of closer to home back in the 50s in this area was the Unitarian minister A. Powell Davies, just down the, the six, down 16th at All Souls Unitarian Church. And he was a friend of senators and Supreme Court justices and civil rights workers, as well as restaurant workers and, and, and people in general. And he went on to establish 11 Unitarian churches in this area. 
So the second type of person that you need in order to start an epidemic are the mavens. And these are the information gatherers. These are the people who do a lot of research. They like to synthesize a lot of information. They read a lot. They know a lot about a whole lot of things, and their motivation is actually to educate and to help. They generally have an aura of authority and power. And they are essential to the epidemic because these are the ones that actually provide the message. Now, Dr. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, was probably more a maven than a connector. John Lovejoy Elliott was the early connector. He was the associate leader to Adler, and at the time, he was the heart and soul of his society as well as the social reform movement for which our movement became known. He would actually live in the settlement houses and in the slums, connecting with people and connecting with leaders in those areas. But mavens and connectors need a third kind of person in order to actually make an epidemic. And they are the salespeople. These are the people, I kind of hate that term, frankly, but these are the people whose enthusiasm and charm and optimism and relational skills enable them to be persuasive. They communicate their appreciation and love for others as they persuade. Now, there were several people in our early movement that filled that bill, taking ethical culture, the idea of ethical culture, around this country and also abroad. And I'm sure that you can think of people in this society who fit the bill of being salespeople. What makes an idea a candidate for exponential growth, Gladwell says, is its stickiness. It has everything to do with making the message so memorable that it sticks in someone's mind and then compels them to take action. Now, I want you to note that it doesn't have to do with how persuasive the message is, but rather how memorable it is. Now, the thing about stickiness is that the personal character of the people trying to spread the message can certainly help it spread. But if the message is not worth spreading, then it is doomed to failure. We know that we have a profoundly and vitally important message worth spreading. But perhaps we need to rethink how we are phrasing our message. Perhaps... Just perhaps the 19th century language it is cloaked in might not be making it sticky enough. Wes experienced a small tipping point of our own back in the, in the late 70s, and I experienced it when I first joined. It is when we began offering classes on relationship building. Up until that point, we had been primarily an intellectual and an activist bunch. We were doing incredible work in our community and in the world, but we weren't paying attention to how we treated one another in the process. So alert community leaders, Lynn Wayman and Don Montagna, talked about how hard it seemed to be for so many good intention, dedicated, and hardworking members to connect with one another and stay connected with one another. And that is certainly true, as you know, for the broader community as well. And out of these conversations, as I understood, most of them took place at the Parkway Deli, our relationship-building classes were launched. Now, besides the curricula being full of very original and 
transformative material, what I believe tipped the scales was the sticky and memorable message that they used to sell those classes. And perhaps you can remember it. This is what they said. We are not born with an operator's manual in order to know how to have good relationships in our lives. But those skills can be learned. Do you all remember that? Those who were here at the time? Now, this was not entirely a new concept. It was based, in fact, on a whole lot of research, primarily done by Lynn. But it did take hold. And it took hold because of the law of the few. A handful of connectors and mavens, too, who had explored other kinds of relationship building courses. And so they could give this message credibility. And the salespeople who then spread the word. It held because there was a stickiness factor in the message. So much so that our buildings were filled completely to capacity in the administration and in this building every single Tuesday night and on Saturdays as well. And other societies in the movement replicated that curricula and even Open University began to offer it and so on and so on. But it also took hold, I believe, because of the third and final principle in Gladwell's thinking, and that is the law of context. In this area, at that time, our members and those outside our doors were ready for the relationship-building message. And epidemics are sensitive to the conditions and circumstances of the times and in the places in which they occur. Small changes in the context of a message can determine whether or not it tips. We are powerfully influenced by our surroundings. Social epidemics fail, Gladwell says, if the environment in which they are introduced is wrong or if the current mental state of the population is not prepared for the message. Conversation, it turns out, is the social context in which ideas can become infectious. When the connectors and the mavens and the salespeople in a community come together around ideas, where they can listen deeply and then begin to emotionally read each other. They have the potential for becoming agents of social epidemics. It's precisely because this type of information, this type of interaction, allows for emotional contagion that an idea needs in order to take hold. So when we think about our dreams for expanding the ideas of ethical culture. It's tempting for us always to get out a bunch of newsprint and set up our easels and graphing paper and try to fit our dreams into some sort of strategic planning process. And this is helpful. But ethical culture can no longer backslide or creep along incrementally. It needs a revolution of ideas, an urgency of purpose, a tipping point. Tipping points are not actually amenable to most planning processes. They are volatile. They are unpredictable and difficult to plan. They are composed of literally thousands of small, interconnected choices and decisions along the way. So what we can do is to create an environment for decision-making that is likely to produce tipping point changes. And to do that will require a whole lot of trust and authenticity and collegiality and flexibility. And these are all attributes of people able to take advantage of tipping points. 
And next month, you're going to have an opportunity to do just that. On your chair this morning, you received something that says Identity Dialogue Sign-Ups. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago to hear my platform, or if you read Richard's article in the newsletter, you know a little bit about this. And I invite you some point this morning to take a look at what that sign-up sheet says. I more than invite you to read it. I invite you to sign up for, for whatever group that you want to be with. It means meeting over a four-month period. But these groups will be led by Richard and by me and by members of the board and other leaders. And I ask you to take the time this morning to take out your day timers and fill out your form and give it to either Mark at the registration table or Richard or to me. These dialogues will give us the opportunity to talk intimately with each other about what matters to our community and what matters to ourselves. How can we deepen and broaden our roles as a force for good? How can we serve the world more intentionally, more bravely, more creatively, and more effectively? What will we do with our collective power, which is considerable but largely untapped? When we think of ourselves as a force for good in the world, what does this call us to do? To say, where is our voice? How might our community enter into the questions and issues of the day, giving voice to the values and principles that are sacred to us, knowing that that there may be many ways to impart our convictions, sometimes in words, sometimes in action, sometimes in outrage, sometimes in advocacy, and sometimes in gratitude. Our little community here on 16th Street in the most powerful city in the world is part of a broader community where our country's founding principles and civil liberties are vulnerable and fragile right now and are being taken for granted. What are we as a community called to do? What does responsible citizenship require of us right now? What is our tipping point as a community that will make a difference? What is the tipping point in your own heart where you will take that step out of the door to speak up, to show up, to act up, and to know that that is what we must do as inconvenient or as risky as it may be? These are the types of questions that we will be discussing. Because if we're going to affect real change in our community and transformation in our personal lives, we will be needing to talk more with each other, listen more, and notice what everybody else in our community is talking about. We need to to discover and name our connectors and our mavens and our salespeople and affirm and appreciate them for the powerful role that they are playing in creating the transformation that we seek. And we need to look at our larger movement as well. Who are the connectors and mavens and salespeople around the movement? In the leadership of the American Ethical Union, what questions of identity might they need to be asking themselves? What urgent message of hope, what sticky message of hope might they send out to the world? So today is Community Sunday, and in a moment, some of our program leaders will be setting up tables around the room about 
giving you all information, inviting you to help them make plans about this new season. And their presence in doing this reminds me that if membership is going to mean anything at all, it means participation. It means joining your voice with others for causes that matter to you. It means bumping up against each other with the people who are sitting near to you, hearing what they have to say about their lives. It means investing your time, your energy, your money, your talent, your love, and your labor. That's what it means to be in community. It means showing up on Sunday mornings at celebrations and at important membership meetings. You are what makes this community and this movement alive. You do it by being here, allowing this place and these people to grow in your heart and our shared values to guide your life. Because of you, we are entering a very exciting period. What might be the tipping point for our community? Has it already begun as a result of a shift in our thinking brought about by our interim leader and also by the transition process as a whole? Will it happen when we dedicate our building this January? Will it be through the hard work of, and dedication and wisdom of our search committee? Um, will it happen when we call our new senior leader? Will it take all of those things, but then truly take off the night next spring when our hall will be filled to capacity, listening to a riveting talk when we launch our new lecture series? Or will it happen during a discussion after a movie's with meaning or through the commitment that we are making to groups that serve others around our area? Or maybe the tipping point will happen during a deepening circle when something is said that is so moving that it stirs a contagious reaction throughout the community. Or maybe the tipping point will arrive as a result of making a decision today to enter into final negotiations on dual membership with the UUA. Will that be the catalyst for transformation? What I do believe is that someday in the future, when we look back on this time, we will have reason to fondly remember the commitments made when all we knew for certain was about the future, about the future was uncertainty. And we will celebrate each decision that was made along the way, large or small, that led us to past the tipping point of our reservations, past the tipping point of our indecision, past the tipping point of our disbelief that we could be more than we ever thought that we could be. In the meantime, let's be grateful and energized by the fact that glorious possibility waits for us. It waits for us, as it always has. All we have to do is reach for it.